Again, my name is Marshall. I'll be uh, preaching on the verses that Claire uh, Carnes just read for us. And um, I do want to add one more thanks. We're honoring a lot of folks today. Uh, I did this last week in the congregational meeting, uh, but I wanted to do this uh, in front of the whole service. I did this at the early service, and that is I want to honor and thank those who have been on our renovation team. Uh, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, we made a decision to uh, invest in a special way in our youth and children's ministry. We engaged a consultant. We built a team of volunteers from this church uh, to really engage. Children are always an important part of the ministry of a church, uh, but particularly in a place like the North Shore where people move here because of their children, because of schools. And so uh, in addition to staffing, which we were really working hard on, uh, we made this investment to build what we called a sustainable ministry, which meant that all of us are pulling on the oars. And so the group of people that I'm about to uh, name their names and ask them to stand have really been working hard in making our youth ministry, our children ministry, as sustainable uh, as they can. So I'm so thankful to the following people. Uh, several of them are in the congregation. I'm asking you to stand. I know I did this at the congregational meeting, uh, but this is in front of the whole congregation. Uh, Missy Chanel, I saw Missy walk in. Yeah, Missy, our chairman up there. Uh, Missy chaired the Reno team. Also, Joe Shelley helped us uh, organize our Costa Rica trip coming up in a few weeks. Taryn Boatman, Adam Getch, uh, Alex Hansen, Alex, uh, uh, Kristen Colquitt, uh, as well as Diana Williams and Allie Brent. I got everybody, didn't I, Missy? Yes, I think so. I think I did. I, great. So let's uh, uh, thank these folks for a tremendous amount of time and effort. And as part of making that sustainable, we're actually, uh, what they've been called the Reno team, there will be a team called the CYC, the Children and Youth Committee, uh, which will be going forward. Several of those folks will stay with that. Some of them uh, will roll off. Uh, but it really is a way to engage. One of the, the, the findings we have come across in the last several years is that a church that really has a thriving uh, youth and children program really has everybody involved. And so we're so excited for their work and the continuing work of the CYC, the Children and Youth uh, Committee. Well, let me pray before we look at these uh, passages. God, we're about to uh, look at verses that tell us to shout with joyful voices and to come into your courts with thanksgiving. And as we come into this room, some of us come feeling that way. Some of us come feeling joyful. It's good to see friends. It's good to be together. The weather is better. And we feel joyful. Others of us, though, Lord, we come with heavy hearts. We come bringing the cares and the concerns of the world. Something has happened to us, or maybe we're just blue. We are down. Some of us, God, if we're honest, we are just numb. We are bored. We are hurting. And Lord, you are the great God. You're the only one who knows all our hearts. In fact, you know our own hearts better than we ourselves. We're confused by our own hearts. And so as we talk about worship, I God, I pray that you would meet us in the preaching of your word. I pray that all our hearts would be edified by your word this morning, my own included. I pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is The Living Church Worships. The Living Church Worships. Now, I have two-esque goals this morning, two-ish or esque goals. The second goal is to help you engage with public worship and to appreciate it, to love it more, to engage with this time more and more. But to accomplish my second goal, I have to accomplish my first goal. And my first goal is to convince you that you are a worshiper. 
that you can't help it, in fact, that you are a worshiper. And to make my point to you, I'm going to lean on an author named Jamie Smith, an illustration that he gives. Because what I want to do is I want to take you on an imaginative tour, a virtual tour, as it were, of one of the most important religious sites on the North Shore. It's a place that, like me, you may be familiar with this place. And as you approach this religious site, you pull into the parking lot, you'll notice there's a lot of parking. This is a seeker-friendly environment. As you pull in, you notice there's a steady stream of people, I'll refer to them as worshipers, making their way to the worship facility, to the building. You can recognize the regulars. They have a breezy confidence. They've been here before. They know what they're doing. The entrance itself is quite attractive. Festal colors, pleasing music, images and symbols that exude status, beauty, and excellence. It's hard to find any litter on the ground. The landscaping is immaculate. As you enter the different alcoves of this sanctuary, and it's literally a sanctuary. If a sanctuary is a respite from the world, as you enter the different alcoves of this sanctuary, you notice distinct and pleasing smells, incense. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come, not with dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in the good life. As for the religious workers, the priests, they're welcoming and helpful. They go above and beyond themselves to make sure your wishes are fulfilled and that you find the right size. You may have guessed by now, I'm talking of the religious institution that is the local mall, whether you're an Old Orchard or a Northbrook person. (laughs) Now, you might think this is tongue-in-cheek. It is not. It is not. Uh, Maybe the mall or shopping is not your thing. Maybe your thing is something else that you are tempted to worship. Maybe it's working out, CrossFit, Peloton, spin class. Maybe it's something political that you are so engaged in politics that really brings meaning and worth to your life. Uh, Maybe it is your golf club or a series of golf clubs. I could vividly make this illustration with sports teams. Is there anything more religious than a worship service that is a Bears game Monday night versus the Packers on national TV? I mean, think about it. Men in tribal colors, uh, vestal virgins dancing on the sidelines, banners of past champions, people painting their bodies and shouting with shouts of joy, come, let us sing. Maybe it's something more prosaic. This isn't prosaic, but your children and their achievements. Maybe it's your work and your achievements. Maybe it's something as simple and complex as comfort and security. There is something, things, plural, in your life that you love to the point of worship. Now, my point is not that all those things are bad. They're not, okay? I have a twofold point on this. One is these things are good, but they're not the best. Only God is big enough to worship. But second, my real point here is that you and I were created to love to the point of worship. To quote that great Detroit poet Eminem, you were created to lose yourself in the music. Because the reality is we will worship something. We will love something to the point of worship. That explains you. We are lovers. We are worshipers. Which is to say that Descartes and Plato were wrong. We are not, I think, therefore I am. My desire is to buy stuff and play nice golf courses cannot be explained by thinking. 
significantly more religious, slightly more religious, but no less misguided is, I believe, therefore I am. Accurate beliefs do not necessarily lead to ethical lives, nor do my beliefs explain my life. You see, to be a human is to love, to be passionate, to want to worship something. The 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli said this, Humans are made to adore and obey, but if you give us nothing to worship, we will fashion our own divinities and find a chieftain in our own passions. Closer to our time in this century, David Foster Wallace, an oft-quoted even from this pulpit, quote, David Foster Wallace, in, this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now think about it. I'll use myself as an illustration. What would be the best way for you to know me? If I were to pass out the things that I believe, I'd pass out the Apostles' Creed, which we'll say at the end of our service, and maybe the thing that I try to hide from you, uh, my political convictions. Maybe I, I showed all that to you, all the things that I believe that I think, my philosophical, theological, and political convictions. Would that tell you more who I am? Or if I gave you a copy of my calendar my credit card bill, and maybe most profoundly of all, my phone. And you could check my searches, who I emailed, who I texted, what I did. Who would tell you, well, which of those things would tell you who I am? Right, the second list, right? If I gave you my credit card bill, my calendar, and my phone, you would know what I desire. You would know what I love. They would tell you who I am. And friends, the same thing is true for you. I mean, I think particularly our phones, they tell us what we love what we worship. Now, if you've been with us these last weeks, we've been looking at the early church. Acts chapter 2, which we'll actually look at that story in two weeks, but in Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost, when the church was formed, it was founded, the Holy Spirit comes down in power on the disciples, they preach, Peter preaches this sermon, all these people become Christians. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, in verses we've read every week for the last four weeks, at the end of chapter 2, it describes what the early church was like. In chapter 2, verse 42, it's written for you in your bulletin. I hope you can commit this to memory because this is the basics of Christian discipleship. They, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And what we've said every week is that that verse is not just a description of the early church, but it is a prescription for the church throughout the ages. And we've used the image of planting a garden, that we are planting watering, fertilizing, and trusting that God will give the growth. Because what we want as a church, especially as we emerge from the pandemic, is we want to be devoted to the things the early church was devoted to. So thus far in this sermon series, we've seen the loving church, living church learns, the living church loves, and today the living church worships. Now we see worship in a number of ways in Acts chapter 2. I want you to look with me and notice... I want you to notice, you remember from your 8th grade grammar, whatever they teach grammar. Uh, do they still teach grammar? I don't know. Um, the word the, the definite article, it doesn't say they devoted themselves to breaking of bread. It says the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. When it says the breaking of bread, that is almost certainly a reference to the celebration of the Lord's Supper of communion. And when it says they devoted themselves to the prayers, that is almost certainly a reference to a prayer service, a worship service. I go one step further and say, actually, Acts 2.42 could be a description of an entire worship service. There is teaching, what we're doing now. There is fellowship, what we're doing before and after. There is the sacrament, breaking of bread, and there are prayers. 
You see, worship in many ways is the culmination and the high point of this passage and of the church. I mean, you look at verse 43, awe came upon every soul. There was a deep feeling. And this makes sense because, friends, as I've hoped to establish already, we are created to worship. And then there's also this. Worship will be and is the culmination of our lives. I won't take time to flip there, but if we had more time, I would take us to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is the last book in the Bible, and it's the vision of the Apostle John thinking about and seeing into heaven, seeing into the future as it were. And what are people doing when they are perfected, when they are in heaven? When are they, another way to say it, when are they most themselves? It is when they are worshiping the living God. We were created to worship, and our lives will find their fulfillment and culmination in worship. All right, before we get to looking through these things, let me define worship. I think the easiest way to understand worship is worth, worth-ship, okay? The thing that we give the most love, the most weight to, the thing that we declare with our actions and our words to be worthy, okay? And again, my point thus far in the sermon is you are a worshiper more than you realize. But second, Christian worship, that's what worship is more generally. Christian worship is taking that weight, that greatness, and acknowledging the greatness, the worthiness of God himself. Okay, And the point of a Christian worship service, which is what we are in now, is to week after week turn our hearts back to the only love, the only truly worthy thing that will satisfy us to turn our hearts to the living God. Now let me real quickly, before I get into this, I didn't do this at the first because the youth weren't in here, but I want to address the youth real quickly to our graduates. This sermon and what I've said so far, there's two things I think it can do for you. You can be a diagnostic tool, and it can be something that points you in the right direction. Here's what I mean. Think of it as a thermometer. Think of it as a thermometer and a compass. Because as you go forth from here, graduates, as you go forth from here, uh, this, the act of worship and realizing that you are a worshiper will help you understand you. It will help you when you get frustrated, when you get down, when you get stuck and confused. You can always ask yourself, what is beneath this? What am I wanting? What am I loving? What am I worshiping right now that has me? Worship can be a diagnostic tool. What is it it about me that's going on with my heart, with my soul right now? So it's both a thermometer to take your temperature, but it's also a compass to point you in the right direction, as it were, to get you back on the right path, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Because loving and worshiping the living God is the way to find your true north, okay? So what I want to do this day, so end of little spiel to the graduates, uh, but the rest of the sermon is for the graduates too, I should say. Uh, why worship is hard, why worship matters, and what worship does for us. I'm going to go relatively quickly through the first two. Why worship is hard, why worship matters, what worship does. First, why worship is hard. Let me read again verses 1, 2 in the first part of chapter 3 and see how you feel when I read these. Just Don't look, just listen. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. How do you feel? Some of you are like, amen. Some of you are like, man, I need more coffee. (laughs) And that guy up there needs to simmer down. But more seriously, some of you don't feel like that. For real reasons. You don't feel the awe of chapter 2, verse 43 of Acts. You know, the number one reason that worship is hard is we don't feel it. Specifically, God does not seem so great right now. 
Maybe they're for the ordinary reasons, the malaise of life, but there's also very real reasons where you this morning may not feel like worshiping God. Maybe you're watching online, you're sitting in a hospital room next to the bed of someone you love. Maybe you have a sick child. Maybe you're in a tenuous financial situation. Maybe you have a secret parallel life, something that you're deeply ashamed of and you don't know how to bring it into the light. Maybe you are in a hard and lonely marriage. Maybe you've lost someone you love recently. A friend, a parent, a spouse. And you just don't feel like Psalm 95. You don't feel like worshiping. In fact, it's a miracle that you're even in this room or watching online. And then there's this on top of not feeling it. What kind of God, what kind of being demands to be worshiped? I mean, maybe we can get obedience and gratitude, but praise, saying that he's great all the time? I mean, come on. What kind of egomaniac is this? C.S. Lewis, some of you know that name, professor at Cambridge and Oxford in the middle of the last century, said that this, God's demanding to be praised, was the biggest stumbling block, his biggest stumbling block to coming to faith. Which brings us to the second point, why worship matters. We saw why worship is hard. Now let's see why worship matters. And I hope I've already established the first reason that worship matters, and that is that you are a worshiper. You can't help yourself. You can't help but love unto the point of worshiping. But the second reason that worship matters, and this was the breakthrough for C.S. Lewis, is that worthy things must be worshipped to be appreciated. Worthy things must be worshipped to be appreciated. You see, to admire something beautiful, good, or true is not just the proper response, but it's the only way to fully experience it. And to fail to admire the greatness, the worthiness of something, is to totally lose out and miss the point of what it is you're talking about. I shared this illustration uh, six or seven years ago, I believe, but there's a funny article in 2015 in the Chicago Tribune. It's people who gave one-star reviews on TripAdvisor to iconic sites. TripAdvisor is this site that you can go to, you can log on, you can give five star, up to five stars for hotels, for restaurants, for sites. And there's these great iconic sites that all average out to getting five stars, but there are people who give one-star reviews to these things. I mean, for instance, there are 7,000 reviews for the Grand Canyon at the time of this article. 33 were one star. 33 out of 7,000, okay? Uh, there was 9,500 reviews of the Taj Mahal. Uh, 33 of those were also one star. There was 44,000 reviews of the Eiffel Tower. 44,000 reviews. And of those 44,000 reviews, 286 people decided the Eiffel Tower deserved one star. Now, my favorite comments, David H., uh, not to be revealed, whoever David H. is, writes about the Grand Canyon. I've been to a number of so-called landmarks in my time, but what was this? An overblown sandy ditch. Don't get the fascination. Took two hours to get there. Should have stayed in my hotel and watched a DVD instead. <laughs> but the best, though, is the Eiffel Tower. Guy who gave the Eiffel Tower a one-star review because he got to the top of the Eiffel Tower and his view of Paris, wait for it, did not include the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> now we laugh. Because the reviewer's failure to acknowledge the greatness of these sites says more about them than it does about the site. 
And it also tells us that they haven't really engaged with the site. You didn't like the Grand Canyon? You see, the first reason worship matters is that you are a worshiper. But the main reason that worship matters is God is worthy of your praise. He is admirable. He is beautiful. He is good. He is true. uh, Psalm 95, verses 3 and 4. He says, oh, come let us worship and bow down. And then verse 3, the Lord is the great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his Think about this. Our God, no matter how he did it, he created the depths of Challenger Deep. Challenger Deep is the deepest part of the ocean, the deepest part of the Mariana Trench, 35,000 feet deep. He also created the heights of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet above sea level. God created the hippopotamus and the human nervous system. He stretched out the heavens. He painted the Milky Way. And the microorganisms that are turning your breakfast into energy right now. We worship and worship matters because, friends, God is worthy. And to fail to worship him, to fail to worship him is to lose out. It is to miss out. And to not see the greatness of God and the worthiness that he has in himself. It is good for our souls. Worship is hard, but worship matters. But I want to spend the time that we have remaining thinking about what worship does for us what worship does for us six things actually i'll read them quickly and then we'll go through them quickly as well worship does at least six things for us more than this it lifts our eyes it connects us to our bodies it humbles us it exalts us it tells us the gospel and it helps us to love and worship the right thing first it does is it lifts our eyes psalm 95 One, come, let us sing to the Lord. This is an invitation to bring the God perspective into our lives. We need this on a weekly, even a daily basis. We are beat down. All those things that I mentioned above, the sickness, the loneliness, the death, the hurt, all of that stuff, we need to, in the midst of those things, remember that God is God. Worship lifts our eyes. You see, to worship is to add a vertical dimension to our lives, okay? To remember that God is God. I used this illustration in the fall, uh, but there's a famous Norman Rockwell painting. I walked by this, uh, this site uh, just a couple of weeks ago of St. Thomas Church in New York City. It's the corner of 5th Avenue and 53rd. 5th and 53rd, there's a Norman Rockwell painting where there's all these New Yorkers streaming by, looking down. And there's kind of rain coming down. It's a huddled, joyless mass of people in a hurry. But there's a guy on the ladder outside the church changing the sign for the weekly sermon title to lift up your eyes. Everybody's eyes are down, but the sermon title is lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Two years ago, someone updated that painting, and the people were looking down at, you guessed it, their phones. Everything was the same. Same church, same placard, everything, but looking instead at their phones. Worship lifts your eyes. Now hear me clearly, especially if you are hurting this morning. Worship is not telling you to forget your pain. It is not telling you to forget your life, your struggles, the very real things that are happening in your life. In fact, worship should be the one place where you feel free that you can really cry and really let loose. And in the midst of that horizontal experience that you lift up your eyes, worship lifts up your eyes to remember that God is God. Whatever is happening in your life, God is God. He is the great king. And he sits on the throne and worship lifts our eyes 
The second thing worship does, and I wish I had more time with this, uh, but I'm just... This needs to be said, but I'm not going to do enough with it. Worship connects us to our bodies. It connects our souls and our bodies. I mean, look with what I did with the kids this morning. Uh, verse 1 of Psalm 95, let us sing, right? Let us make noise. <laughs> uh, Simon said, no, I'm not, no, um, sorry. Uh, verse 6, let us bow down. I mean, think about a worship service. We come, we listen, we speak, we sit, we stand, we touch, we taste, we smell. There's something about worship that connects us to our bodies. We're not just brains on a stick. We are embodied. We are connected. There's so much more to be said here, but I'm going to keep moving. The second thing that worship does is it connects us to our bodies. The third thing, though, that worship does is worship humbles us. Verse 6 of Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. There's something about worship that ought to drive us either personally or even in corporate worship to our knees. And not in a bad way. This isn't even talking about confession of sin. This is talking about the confession of the greatness of God. Worship humbles us. I mean, if you have stood, and maybe the first time especially, on the rim of the Grand Canyon, what do you feel? You feel swallowed by the greatness. Here is something great and beautiful and ancient and worthy of praise. And so it is with God. Worship humbles us. That's third. But simultaneously at the same moment that worship humbles us, it also exalts us and lifts us up. Worshiping God exalts you. Look with me at Psalm 95 verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving the God who created everything the heights the depths he asks us to come into his presence all these great things about God and we are invited to play a part to be in his presence there's something about the worship of God that both humbles us and lifts us up and exalts us dignifies us so what does worship do for us it lifts our eyes it connects us to our bodies it humbles us and exalts us but ultimately and finally, the last two things, what Christian worship does is it tells us the gospel and it reorients our heart to love the most true and beautiful thing, the living God. First, or fifth actually, but you, fifth, uh, note takers, I know you'll get on to me. Fifth, Christian worship tells the gospel story. If you have your bulletin, take out your bulletin and turn to the inside cover right inside of where the logo is on the front cover. And the bottom of that inside page to the left where it's right below the QR code, it says about our worship service. Uh, this has been in there for several years now, uh, but I think it's very informative. There's these five bullet points. In worship, God calls us, God cleanses us, God speaks to us, that is this moment. God communes with us, that is the, that's the Lord's Supper, and God sends us. That's the benediction, the last thing. And I want you to notice, first of all, First of all, I want you to notice that God is the subject of every one of those. God is the one who initiates this. He calls us. He is the initiator of our worship service. But also all these things lead us to This is a restatement of the gospel. That is what a worship service is. It is a restatement, whether you do it like we do or like another church, but this is what a gospel, what a, what a worship service is. It is a retelling of the gospel. And it's a retelling of the gospel story. So sixth and finally, so that we might reorient our hearts to that gospel. A worship service is a retelling of the gospel so that we might reorient our hearts to that gospel. Look with me again. I know I'm having you flip around. But finally, Psalm 95 is really jarring if you read all the way through it. Because this first six verses are like, come let us worship, let us sing, joyful, joyful. 
But then there's this dramatic shift in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Now think about this. How do you get from, oh, come, let us worship. Let us worship and bow down. How do you get from that to do not harden your hearts? Do not harden your hearts. Well, I think the reference to Massa and Meribah help us understand. Let me tell you about what those places are. Those are places. Now, this psalm was written in the context of the Exodus. The Exodus is the story of God's people escaping from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. God delivering his people from slavery. If you are familiar with the Bible story of the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues that, the, uh, that led the people out of Egypt. And then they come to the Red Sea. You've heard of the crossing of the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea. They're on their way to the promised land. Those events, right, were just one or two months before something that happened at Massa and Meribah. One or two months. Think about this. You've, just, you've been enslaved all your life. You've seen these ten plagues. God has led you out. The, the Red Sea has dried up. You've walked across on dry land. You saw those things like a month ago. And yet they get to a place called Massa. They get to a place called Meribah. And they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble against God. And what did they miss? They miss the comfort and security of slavery in Egypt. And because they loved comfort and security, they grumbled against Moses and God. And their hearts became but what's important for you to realize, this was a love issue. This was a worship issue. Because they loved comfort and security, they grumbled and their hearts got hard. And friends, we should not cast stones because we get it, right? You see, hardness of heart and loving other things is not an ancient Israelite problem. It is a human problem. It is our problem. Because we are worshipers. You walk out of this room. Even now you're tempted to look other places besides the living God. Our hearts are always drifting away from worshiping the living God. And when they drift, they harden. It's the natural inclination of the heart to turn on itself, to turn away from God. And a worship service is designed to bring back that loving feeling, to quote Top Gun and the Righteous Brothers. That's what a worship service is designed to do, to retell the gospel so that your heart would be reoriented to love and worship the one true thing that can satisfy your hearts, the living God who created you, who by his grace redeems you. Friends, we need worship every week. Actually, we need it every day. If you look at Acts 2.46, I'm not going to talk about this. I think there's a super important part of daily worship. In the morning, setting your heart on the things of God as you go out into the world, whether it's to the mall or a Bears game or your kid's soccer game or your work, to remind yourself the only thing that will satisfy me is loving the true and great God. I conclude with a story from uh, my pastoral experience in Los Angeles. Um, there was a night in our church where we had a, it wasn't a concert, it was a hymn sing. And it was a great night as a pastor because I had no responsibilities. You know, nobody's going to put me on a stage to sing. Um, and so there's this great evening where we're all coming together to worship and sing. And it was such a great evening. Everybody was there lifting their voices, worshiping, singing. It was a really lovely, it was a lovely evening in so many ways. But one of the burdens and privileges of being a pastor is I knew the stories of the people who were singing around me. I knew what was going on in their life. I knew the people who were sick. I know the people who had come from the hospital, visiting their spouses in the hospital. 
I know who had lost children. I knew who had been on the brink of divorce or were just divorced. I knew who was struggling with fertility. I knew who was brokenhearted. I know who was a single parent struggling to make it by. I could see who was lonely, unemployed, indebted. All around me, singing. All around me, singing. You see, friends, that, that night there were hard circumstances. But there were no hard hearts. There were no hard hearts because we were worshiping the living God. Lift up your eyes and worship God. If you hear his voice, as the psalmist says, do not harden your hearts. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, I know in the sound of my voice, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to worship you and to sing joyfully even, that you would meet us in our anger, in our sadness, and yes, Lord, in our joy. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.